John Clayton. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. Streaming live at 710sports.com. On demand everywhere on the 710 Seattle Sports app. Now, John Clayton. Well, I tell you what, it is a busy day today. You've got the Seahawks trying to make some roster moves to fill in some injury holes. Uh, you know, we'll find out about uh, Damon Snacks Harrison, whether he made it to town. We've got lots going on there. Baseball is ready to start the playoffs with 16 teams in the playoffs. NHL was able to conclude their season with the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning getting the victory and uh, on the Stanley Cup beating Dallas. <clears throat> so we got lots of things on the loose right now. So let's get right to them with the five biggest stories of the day. Number one. Well, I, I think it's like a lot of things in, in the game of football. First of all, there, there was zero intent uh, for injury there. So I, you know, I, I want to make that clear. I, I know Tristan, you know, that's, that's not exactly was, was his intent. I, I think you see fundamentals, particularly early in the season, particularly this, this season, um, that, that we need to continue to work, to work through and do a better job of. So... Um, I, I just, I just think he was trying to wrap and roll, and and, 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 that, and the result of it occurred in the injury. I, I mean, by no means do we want to see players get hurt, especially when it's unnecessary. Uh, but, but by, by all, you know, I could, I could trust me, there was zero intent involved there. So Mike McCarthy saying that there was no intent involved with uh, Tristan Hill injuring the knee of Chris Carson. And of course, there's a big debate up here about that because Pete Carroll doesn't agree. He's very upset with the Chris Carson injury. And uh, what he says is that uh, the league's punishment uh, is going to be a gator roll is what they call it. And a gator roll that kind of rolled up his knee and caused a problem. And he's going to be questionable for the game. He may be able to play. He may not. But we won't know till later in the week. So you would expect that there's going to be a final. I don't think anybody's going to debate that. Now the question is, should there be a suspension? And I would say no, but uh, it didn't look good. And then, of course, that headbutt that uh, Hill had on Russell Wilson a few plays later, that didn't go over very well. So we have to see a better control <laughs> is what's going on there. <laughs> but it's a big deal because, again, injuries are such a big part of this game, and you don't want to have unnecessary injuries caused by players trying to do some dirty stuff. So in Dallas, <clears throat> they're going to say it's okay. I know Brad Sham on the broadcast thought everything was okay, but it's not okay with Pete Carroll. It's not okay with uh, Chris Carson, and it's not okay with the entire Seahawks. But, again, I think the punishment should be a fine, not a suspension. But, again, it's something the Gator rule you should not have. Number two. We see Mike Garofalo of the NFL Network said the Seahawks are hosting uh, veteran safety Demarius Randall. Okay. And you might remember him with the Green Bay Packers. That's right. That Randall might be coming to visit. Are they running out of bodies? And Lano Hill, if Lano Hill stays healthy, they're okay in the interim. Here with, with Jamal Adams probably going to be out for a little bit because of a, a groin injury. If Lano Hill stays healthy, I think they're okay. But you're now down. I mean, that that would be two of of the four safeties that you feel good about with Adams out and Blair lost for the season. So I'm starting to worry about them running out of bodies. And that probably relates to the availability or lack thereof of Jamal Adams, who suffered a, a groin strain. And of course, uh, the advantage is that they are playing the Miami Dolphins, a very winnable game. 
Uh, and I think you watched it with San Francisco. Nobody can complain more about injuries than the 49ers. You know, down nine starters. Jordan Reed goes on the injured list, uh, <coughs> injury reserve list for at least six to eight weeks with his MCL injury. And so, but uh, Demarius Randall coming in, former uh, high draft choice with the Green Bay Packers. And so uh, they've got to look there. And of course, we got to find out about Damon Snacks Harrison. I mean, he at least said that he was going to come to Seattle early this week. We'll see if he's going to be able to be there because that could be one where uh, there could be a couple moves right now that the Seahawks can make on the defensive side of the ball. You know, they know that Jamal Adams is most likely going to miss this week. You know, they're not sure where they stand right now at cornerback because at cornerback, you know, Quadre Diggs, is, he's healthy, but what they don't have right now is the knowledge of whether Quentin Dunbar is going to be able to go because he's got that knee injury. So, yeah, you can see it's like, okay, last week it was Marquise Blair. This week it's Jamal Adams. Then, of course, you got the back injury that happened to Leno Hill. So all of a sudden, one of the deepest positions on the team's safety where they had three different options, you know, they don't know which option is going to be available, whether it's going to be Adams, which is mo- most unlikely, or whether Hill's going to be able to heal up from that back injury. So that's a good, but it's going to be a very big day in the NFL because again the injury bug continues to be really really bad and uh, it's one where uh, I still count up and I've been keeping track of missed starters since 2015 and it's it's as bad as it's been 257 missed starts so far in the first three weeks of the season and there was about 114 uh, on week three so it was pretty bad another thing we find out about is Jermaine Curse makes his retirement announcement the former wide receiver on drafted from the Seahawks, uh, grew up in this area, and uh, went to UW. He announced his retirement today. Number three. Their outside linebacker coach, Shane Bowen, tested positive before they left from Minnesota. Shane is also the pseudo, I guess you could call it, defensive coordinator. Mike Grable is a big part of it, but Shane has been carrying a lot of that responsibility this year. Um, So he's around a lot of people and a lot of players and coaches and and people that work uh, with Tennessee. But, you know, they're really vigilant about testing there. And when Bowen tested positive, I spoke to people in Tennessee to find out, you know, is he the only one? How's this working? And other tests came back negative in terms of the other players and the people that had been around him. Um, So Tennessee just did what they thought was, was the right thing to do, which was, we're okay, we're safe, we're healthy, let's go. Um, and now you're seeing that this looks like a mini breakout. Yeah, so that's uh, Diana Rossini from ESPN talking about a very big developing story in the National Football League. Tennessee Titans had to shut down their operation in the uh, building till, uh, all the way through Saturday. <clears throat> so they're going to close the building. They're going to try to go ahead and clean everything up at the team facility because what ends up happening is three players and five people on the staff where there was going to be coaches. And, that, and this doesn't include uh, Shane Bowen, who missed the game on Sunday because of the uh, positive test that he had on Saturday. And so they have confirmed that there are the eight positive tests. Now, they also have temporarily shut down the Minnesota Vikings because, again, that's who the team that the Titans played. And it looks like, you know, nobody tested positive. So it looks like that could go. But there's a decent chance right now that uh, they're probably going to have to move the uh, Tennessee-Pittsburgh game, which, of course, is in Nashville, uh, to some way uh, juggle some bye weeks and things like that just so they can try to get this game in. But at this moment, it doesn't look good 
good that the Titans are going to be able to host the Seahawks Steelers on Sunday. Uh, so lots of updates coming as we go. But as of right now, everybody's working remote. That means there's not going to be any practice during the week for the Titans. And with no practice, you would have to anticipate that there's not going to be any game this week between Tennessee and Pittsburgh. The big thing right now is trying to find out if you can get the players back and the eight people that tested positive, get them out of quarantine and get them to have some negative tests. Number four. And they're trying to get there and to get a trigger pull of a shot that went wide that time was Goodrow. And the Tampa Bay Lightning have won the Stanley Cup. Pretty remarkable. The Tampa Bay Lightning end up winning the game and uh, getting the 2 nothing victory. <clears throat> so they win 4-2 to in the series, getting the Stanley Cup championship over the Dallas Lightning, or the Dallas team. And so overall, this now is a team that's been building since 2015. And of course, uh, Todd Lywicki was very much involved in that buildup. And so I think you can see with him being tied to the uh, Kraken that they have a good chance of trying to get some great success there. But a big moment in the Stanley Cup, Tampa Bay Lightning getting the victory 2 to nothing, and they win the series in six. Number five. What felt good under pressure tonight? Uh, I mean, we just worked on it all, all offseason. I mean, going against our defense and training camp, they blitz a lot as well. And so we, we got presented those situations, and then we executed. And I uh, thought we did a great job. The guys sped up their routes, and the O-line did a great job of protecting me. Did you feel like you had all the answers tonight? Because that's how it looked. Uh, I don't know if you would say that. I thought we had a good game plan coming in. The guys were ready to go. Uh, we understood this would be a big game for later on in the season. So I'm, I'm proud of the guys for how they played tonight. So that's Patrick Mahomes getting the 34-20 victory uh, over the Ravens, kind of stating, of course, Mahomes is the best quarterback, along with Russell Wilson in the National Football League. And Lamar Jackson, for whatever reason, has trouble when that running offense falls behind. Uh, Of course, he only scored technically 13 points because seven of those came on a kickoff return. But the final score was... 34-20, to and Mahomes was was moving the ball up and down the field against that blitzing Baltimore defense. And so now it's a matter, it's like, this is one of those matchups that each year everybody's going to be looking forward to, uh, seeing Lamar go up against Patrick Mahomes. But Kansas City's sealed right now the fact that they're the number one seed in football with the fact that they get that victory. They're 3-0. Ravens are now 2-1. And and, uh, just amazing to see that the defense had very few answers in Baltimore trying to stop uh, Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. So big victory for the Chiefs as they go to 3-0 and as we start to see how things are going in the, AF- in the AFC. And that's it. Hey, listen to the show via the 710 Sports app. It's powered by the Dubin Law Group. Coming up next, we're going to go under further review and talk a little bit about what's going on with defenses and the defensive issues right now, uh, seeing where that goes. Because again, you're seeing a lot of points scored and how much is this a league-wide thing? How much of it is a Seahawk thing? It's the John Clay Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. Under further review with John Clayton. We'll review the play. Well, it was funny. <laughs> I was listening to uh, Danny and Gallant uh, this morning, and uh, they got into a subject that uh, I've been pretty well saying, but uh, I think a lot of people in town aren't appreciating. I know yesterday when we were taking phone calls, you know, people wanted major shakeups in the defense. They wanted this guy benched, go get this guy, all those different things. And thinking, okay, Seattle's like the only team right now that uh, has having trouble stopping anybody on defense. But when you look at it, it's like it's a league-wide type of thing. I mean, if you would say, looking at some of the top seeds in the uh, NFL right now, uh, particularly in the NFC, 
you know, one of the problems is they're all in a similar boat. I mean, you know, you've got uh, a Green Bay Packer team that is giving up uh, 20, uh, well, they're, let's say they're, they're giving up 28.3 points a game. New Orleans Saints, who I thought were going to be the number one seed, they're giving up 31.3 points. Then you look all around, I mean, Philadelphia, they're giving up 29 points a game. And you see it more so in the NFC than the AFC, because in the NFC, you have 12 quarterbacks making $21 million or more, and 11 of those quarterbacks have been to a Pro Bowl. And, of course, you've got MVPs, all those different things. You know, Atlanta, you know, they're giving up uh, 20, 36 points a game. And so the defenses are just getting carved up, particularly more in the NFC than the AFC. And so that was a subject uh, that was being talked about today uh, with Danny and Gallant. Conventionally, what we usually say is good defense beats good offense. I'm, I'm not sure if that's true in the NFL in general anymore. And it really might not be true this year, where you don't have an opposing crowd to deal with. Kansas City's able to go into Baltimore, and it certainly seems like the biggest edge you have right now is not just a great quarterback, but a a quarterback who can throw the ball down the field, because Lamar Jackson had a very poor passing performance, and Baltimore just looked like they had a twenty-two caliber air rifle in a match against a three fifty-seven Magnum. And it continues a theme where when Baltimore falls behind they don't have the ability to catch up and so much for having that great running game and that supposedly great defense if the complimentary football doesn't actually even itself out or show itself on the scoreboard it's weird to me that Baltimore bails on the run as quick as they do because their run game is pretty explosive like they're not some sort of three yards in a cloud of dust I I I think they bail on it too quickly and there was a point where it looked like they were going to get back into it last night, right? It was two, it was a two score game, and they get they they never really they never really made it uncertain or made it interesting in in the second half. And and I I did I wasn't as worried about Baltimore's offense as I was just hey if part of your if part of your solution is we're going to run the ball and play great defense. I don't know if the play great defense is going to work this year because it just seems Baltimore allowed 22 points over the first two weeks. They'd, they'd allowed the fewest points in the league and, and it, it didn't matter. They got a special teams touchdown and they still weren't close to me. That's really their, their offense is not built around big plays in the passing game. Like that's, and starting to throw in some receivers there. I, I don't know. I think you're going away from your strength and coming away from that game. And I think this speaks to the Seahawks. Because if you want to have a dominant run game and control the clock, I think you need to have a good defense. And that's really, again, uh, DJ Wilder, it's like, uh, how many times have I been saying it is that uh, you're looking at a different NFL right now. Part of it's the pandemic. Part of it is because, you know, defenses are trying to catch up, having no preseason games, no offseason programs. And again, quarterbacks have such an edge, particularly the accurate quarterbacks who can get the ball downfield, more running quarterbacks. I mean, you saw last year, particularly with Kansas City and Baltimore, nobody had an answer for Lamar Jackson. Well, right now, most of the uh, defenses in the NFL don't have many answers for the way the game is today. And that's why you know I bring it up. And it's more so in the NFC than the AFC, just because the NFC has more established quarterbacks, where in the AFC you have 10 quarterbacks with three years or less experience. 
Well, I think it's just a trend that we're starting to see, John. Right now in 2020, there are six teams that are averaging at least 30 points a game right now on offense. Then there, then there's the Packers at the top who are averaging 40.7 points so far. In 2019, there was only one team that averaged over or at least 30 points a game, and that was Baltimore, ironically, which is kind of what the root of this discussion is all about just because it seems – like, they definitely, when you look at their free agency moves, you know, they franchise tag Matthew Judon. They trade for Calais Campbell. They add guys like Derek Wolf on the defensive line. And they're definitely trying to build this thing defense first and then with a strong running game to really just kind of drain clock. And, of course, they're going to try to score their points, try to get back to their 33 points a game average that they were at last season. But they were definitely looking to build this thing defense first. And I think right now what we're seeing with the six teams averaging at least 30 points a game that maybe defense isn't as important. Now, on the other hand, in 2019, you had the Chiefs, of course, who won the Super Bowl. On defense, they were only giving up 19.3 points a game. So I think defense is still important to a certain extent. I think you're always going to give up yards, especially now with the quarterbacks, especially now with the wide receivers and the tight ends and the running backs that can all catch, uh, all catch now. And, of course, running backs – Still rushing, just not at the frequency that we saw even 10 years ago. But I really think right now we're really seeing offense is just becoming more important than defense when really the old phrase was defense wins championships, offense sells tickets. But I think we're seeing a trend here, John. See, but that's the thing. It's like a, people got to keep up to date with the changes that keep on happening. Because that phrase about uh, defenses win championships, that's been outdated for two, for 20 years. Because the, where that changed is when Peyton Manning, Tom Brady came in, and they escalated the uh, passing game to be as important. So what came down, quarterbacks win. And so, uh, you know, it was defenses that, you know, keep you in. And certainly you saw in 2013, it worked so well. But uh, if you don't have the quarterback, you're not going to win. And so you're not going to win the championships. And so that was totally outdated. But then you look at this year, it's pretty incredible when you see the average now is that uh, an offense is averaging 25.5 points a game. Now, that's uh, literally what the... three or four a game more than last year. There's 281 touchdowns in the uh, first three weeks of the season. That's 30 more than last year. I mean, so you you got record offensive touchdowns. You have record touchdown passes. uh, You know, and what's also intriguing is that, you know, total, when you combine two teams, there's like 26 more yards per game than last year, and 25 of those are rushing. I mean, passing-wise, okay, it's 495.7, 6.6 per attempt. But at this stage, I mean, it's an offense-driven league. And defenses eventually will try to catch up. But again, with the pandemic, with the mispractice time, everything else, you know, it's going to be tough and it's going to take a while. And so, you know, if you have 15 teams that are scoring 30 points a game and you look what's going on in Seattle and you say, oh, it's terrible here. This defense is terrible. Go look at the rest of the league and look at the rest of the NFC. I think I, I want to point out a text here. This is a really good point here from the 360. They say, for several years now, defense, defense, defense has been very hard to play because of penalties. And it's bec- and I totally agree with that. I Like you said, John, it's an offensive-driven league. And I think it's become much more difficult for defenders, especially for defensive backs, to cover receivers because it really seems like they can't they can't touch receivers anymore at all. And so I think it does it has become a little more difficult. But with, with Seattle's defense, they give up they're giving up so many yards, so many big plays, and a lot of points too. But I think 
the fact that they come up with plays at the right time, which is what the Chiefs even did. I know they still only gave up, uh, as I said, 19.4 points a game last year. But they always came up with big plays. That's what um, you know. They bolstered their pass rush. They already had Chris Jones there, but they, that's why they traded for Frank Clark. That's why they acquired Tyron Matthew just to get those playmakers, and and that's what the Seahawks have done, and that's what a lot of teams are trying to do. They're just focusing more on offense, but on defense, they want to be able to make the plays at the right time in order for them to win. But also, it's, and, and schedule means everything, as I always say. And uh, take a look now. The Seahawks have gone against three good quarterbacks. Cam Newton's playing well. Didn't have as good of a game this past week. You know, Matt Ryan's throwing for big numbers. And Dak Prescott's throwing for big numbers. But then you look at San Francisco. Okay, they're 2-1. and one, And they play two of the worst teams in football, you know, that has struggling young quarterbacks. And so they get the two wins. And they're thinking, okay, but take a look at the remaining schedule for the 13 games for both teams. Seattle, because they've got three teams that are better than the teams that the 49ers played, uh, they have a 449 schedule, ninth easiest in the league, where San Francisco is sitting there at 628, which is the tough, uh, second toughest schedule in football. And so what you just need to do, and that's why it's fortunate that they're playing a Miami team, although that could be a trap game, that uh, you know they can still try to not have to play their best football and win. And then they got a Minnesota team coming in there with Kirk Cousins struggling to defense being one of the worst in football and uh, you know you win those two and then you start to get to the bye week and rest up hey tell your smart speaker to play 710 ESPN Seattle remember you can always listen on your 710 on the smart speaker or the app coming up next we're going to talk to Shannon Dreyer wrapping up this baseball season it's the John Clayton show 710 ESPN Seattle it's John Clayton. Power through the Alaska Airlines studio. Two hours every day, 10 to noon. Streaming live at 710sports.com. On demand on the 710 Seattle Sports app. And joining us is Shannon Dreyer. And Shannon, I'll, I'll, let's, let's be blunt about this. Was this a fun season for you to cover? I know it's different because, you know, the way that it was with the pandemic. But was this Mariner team one of the more fun teams that you watched because of the surprises that it did? As far as the team goes and enjoying the baseball, yes. Uh, I think that coming into it, there was, if you've been covering this for as long as I have and had as many down years as long as I have witnessed, just the idea of coming into the season and knowing that it was going to be about development and uh, getting to watch it in a different manner than I have gotten to watch any other season, yeah, I thought that it was going to be fun. But then, and this is, you know, I've said this a few times, but one of the biggest shames of all of this as it pertains to the Mariners is is that we couldn't get down in that clubhouse. And, you know, not only were these guys interesting on the field, they were very interesting off the field. And I, you know, just am really looking forward to the day where we can walk up to them and just ask them a question about something that just happened in a game or how they approach something and have those conversations because uh, it seems like a very, very uh, just incredible group. Their bond is incredibly close. Uh, they were a lot of them brought up together through Double A, and so they kind of all speak the same baseball language, and they have that, uh, you know, that kind of one last thing that winning teams really need in that you're not just playing for yourself, but you're playing for the guy next to you. They definitely have that because they spent so much time together coming up together. And we hear about that and hear about that and hear about that. And I think we saw it down in the field and in the conversations that we were able to have with them from afar. So, you know, in that aspect of it, it was a tough, a very tough season to cover just getting into the park, you know, and getting to the park and, and everything, you know, along those lines was, uh, you know, much more time consuming than it's ever been. 
and, you know, exhausting in the, the sprint that it was. But as far as what we actually saw and had to deal with on the baseball sense and on the field and on the people sense, uh, it was a very, very good year in that regard. What uh, what what players kind of uh, stood out aside from Kyle Lewis, who, you, who we're expecting him to be rookie of the year, but kind of really surprised you and caught you that uh, you, you, you were saying, hmm, interesting. Well, I think the biggest surprise, I think you have to look at Dylan Moore for the biggest surprise. And uh, I think there are a few surprises, and that's really good news. But I, I think that he really came out of nowhere. He is somebody that was signed the year before, and he was a minor league free agent. So his own organizations did not take a shot on him, and he was available. And he was signed very early. In fact, I think he was the first sign of the rebuild. And Jerry, you know, we didn't know who he was. And Jerry said, yep, he's on the roster. And, you know, Jerry went and got him because uh, he was of his versatility, and he was a utility player. I don't think he knew much about that the bat had that much potential to it. And what we saw last year, the, the numbers when he did get to play at the plate were not impressive. I think he hit around 230, and uh, he was able to, you know, passably play all the positions that he played. But the one thing that really intrigued me, particularly in the second half of the year, is that when he did hit a home run on occasion, he hit that ball very, very hard. And that was something that he ended up realizing, and he thought that he could go to work on And If he made more contact the way that he got a little bit bigger, uh, more balls would go out of the ballpark. And uh, most of the work that he did that was most significant came in the shutdown. He worked with Dee Gordon, who was a neighbor of his, and Dee's got good contact skills. You know, teach me your contact skills. And they work day in and day out, and he shows up, and he's almost a different player. And to think that he actually began the season with COVID on top of everything else. He was one of the ones who did not pass the intake test and had a very late start to summer camp. I think he came in and with eight games to go in summer camp and to have the season that he was and to show that, you know, he is a force at the plate. And I think that there's even some room for improvement there. And I think he upped his game defensively too. And he can steal bases. He led the team in stolen bases, just turned himself into an all round player that, and that was very eye opening. It was something kind of along the lines of, Austin Nola last year, a guy that had that full minor league foundation who kind of took charge of his own uh, career and what he was doing and uh, turned his game around. So I'm looking forward to what you see there, and I think you see him penciled in at second base next year. You know, No longer the utility guy. He went in and he took a job, and that's impressive. The other big surprise, Justice Sheffield making as much progress as he did. You know, This was the year where he had to show. It was time. He'd had a couple of ups and downs. But uh, for him to come in and to embrace a new pitch and completely change his game, not just you know what he was throwing, but how he was throwing, and really commit to being a pitcher and not a guy that was just going to go out there and try and overpower everybody, which is what he has been his entire career. He was a four-seam fastball guy. Now he's a kind of crafty two-seamer with a great slider and an improving changeup. I thought that that was uh, very, very impressive what he did as well. Yeah, no question. So now uh, let's kind of go from uh, the positions and say, what spots do you think are pretty well taken care of, let's say, in the infield next year, starting obviously with Evan White at first base? Yeah, I think Evan White, they will you know, continue to get the opportunities at first base. He's the best defensive first baseman anyone has ever seen. He's got a great chance at winning the Gold Glove and the Fielding Bible Award. And I think they saw, you know, they're so intrigued by the power that he has. And he hits the ball hard. His contact rates and his hard hit rates are among the best in the league. They've got to turn that into more hits. And what's encouraging, when I talked to him a couple of days ago, he said, I'm actually encouraged that I was able to do what I was able to do with my C swing. And I didn't quite understand what he said. He said he basically graded a swing a C-. He never felt comfortable at the plate. 
well, he got those 60 games, and that was the whole purpose of this year. Now he can go to work in the offseason. So uh, you hope that you see more from him at the plate. But I think you do write him into first base. At second base, I think we see Dylan Moore. Uh, J.P. Crawford has solidified himself at shortstop and taken leaps and bounds defensively. Need to see more offensively from him. But, you know, perhaps he stumbled upon something in those final games where he went, I think it was like 7 for 12, uh, drove in a bunch of runs and did so mostly going the other way. I also think he's going to grow into some power at some point as well. Uh, just a question of how much he can do in the off season. Kyle Seeger's back at third base and then your catchers. I think you're going to see Tom Murphy. Hopefully that put heels. That's a bit of a concern right now. And Luis Torrens behind the plate. Okay. What about now the outfield? Uh, hopefully Mitch Haniger is healthy and in right field. If he's healthy, he will be in right field. Kyle Lewis was a big surprise that he could play center field. I, he came up as a center field, but after the knee injury, I think everybody, himself included, thought he would be limited to the corners, and he's proven that he can play there. He can ably play there, and I think he can get better there. You know, he can make the big plays, but he covers a lot of ground. He's huge for a center fielder. That's not always a bad thing if he can run a little bit, and he's showing that as well. And uh, then in left field, you know, that's where things are eventually going to get interesting out there. And uh, at some point, you are going to see Jared Kelnick. I don't think it will be at the start of the year. Uh, so I think, you know, you'll be looking at how you fill that spot until he gets there. Okay, now let's go into starting pitching. How many spots are pretty well so- sealed up right now? I think all of them. Let's. Uh, you've got Marco Gonzalez at the top. Great year from him. Can't say enough about what he did. You say Kikuchi and his uh, the numbers. You know he had a bad inning here and a bad inning there, but they are very encouraged by the peripheral numbers around him and how he changed his stuff. And if he learns how to use that, he could be very, very good. Uh, he needs to take that giant step forward, but uh, is is equipped to do so. I think. Um, and then Justice Sheffield, of course, Nick Margavichus will get a good look. And then Justin Dunn has got some things that he's kind of got to clean up in his game. You know, he was a strikeout pitcher in the minors. We didn't see that. He didn't have the velocity that he had in the minors, uh, and he needs to throw that change up more. I think he is probably the biggest question mark. Uh, and I think that it will be helpful that if, you know, I, I do believe there will be a minor league season next year. I'm not sure what that will look like, but I think that uh, you won't be dealing with just having a taxi squad in an alternate site. So if guys need to work on things, I think they will have the ability uh, to send them to the minors. And then he's going to, you know, Jerry's going to go out and try and, and get another, he will get another starting pitcher. It's just a question of who they would love to bring Taiwan Walker back. No doubt about it. Now, how about in the bullpen, which is going to be probably the most worked upon unit? <laughs> Do we have to talk about that? <laughs> uh, you don't have to, but it'd be helpful. <laughs> Try to figure uh, it out. Well, what was encouraging about what Jerry DePoto said both on uh, Danny and Gallant last week and talking with the media yesterday is that he's going to target that. And what's really exciting about that is he didn't target that this year because they weren't going to compete. So in his mind, you know, they are going to compete. They are going to need a bullpen. I don't think they're going to make the big moves in the offseason. I think they're going to make moves to help them. And then if things take off, then make the big moves at the deadline to try and get to the postseason. Uh, but I, I think that when you look at that bullpen, I, I think uh, you had a big victory with your Rule 5 pick and Johan Ramirez and how you handled him. Do I think he's ready for the back of the bullpen yet? No, but I bring him back, and I think that is something that he can turn into with the stuff that he has, and I think he took strides in managing that, and he's never been able to do that at any level. Command has been just horrific for him, and I think they made good strides with that. I don't think we really saw the real Joey Gerber out there. I think the uh, shutdown hurt him quite a bit. He didn't have the velocity that he had in the minor leagues. He survived 
but I think they believe that he is going to bounce back with a full off season. So I think that that is somebody that is going to be out there as well. Um, I think that they really loved what they saw from Anthony Masevich. I think that he solidified himself as a big part of that bullpen. He's a lefty former starter and he can get left and right out and he has four pitches. He only was using kind of three in the bullpen, but that is going to be of huge, huge, huge use to uh, them out there as well and he just he had a tremendous season for you know a 23 year old who was a late round pick and a converted starter at the beginning of the year so you know outside of that I think there are going to be a lot of positions that are open in that bullpen and you know, some will come from outside and some should come from inside as well hmm, very good so uh what now what's what's your plans now uh, I know obviously watching the playoffs is going to be part of it uh, are you going to take any time off <laughs> Let me throw in one name that I forgot, Ty France. We didn't get yeah. to the DH, and I think that he very well could be third baseman in training or, you know, utility, super utility play everywhere, but they love that bat. That's an impact bat. We didn't see the power from it. They expect to see that next year. My plans, i uh, got to kind of wrap everything up uh, this week, but it's going to be an interesting offseason. We don't know the way that the market is going to go. Uh, I think the winter meetings will all be online this year. I'm interested to see how that's going to happen, but I have a feeling it's all going to buy, go by very quickly. Hoping to, that we, you know, we're going to give them a little break. The players were really great during the shutdown about doing the Zoom interviews uh, throughout, and I think they probably need to go home and decompress a little bit, but hopefully in a month or two we're able to connect with them and check in with them. There'll be some camps to check in and see what's going on with the players um and yes there will be a little bit of time i'm probably about a week away from kind of shutting it down for a week or two oh well good for you of course a great job as always this year i know it was a tough year because of the pandemic and all the delays and everything else but you always did great shannon thanks for joining us Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, John. Okay, and of course, uh, be sure to check out the professor's notes on 710sports.com. The professor's notes are brought to you by Infinity of Tacoma at Fife. Coming up next, we're going to go behind the lines, check out what's going on in the National Football League. John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. John Clayton. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On demand with a 710 Seattle sports app. Well, we'll get into the big story of the day as far as uh, in, a, in a few minutes here, but uh, I just saw something that I, I found a really remarkable in the sense that, uh, you know, analytics people continue to uh, look at different things. And, uh, you know, of course, we talked about, DJ, the idea that, oh, boy, where's Seattle going to be as far as their ability to have the offensive line? Now, listen to this stat coming from Computer Cowboy from ESPN, this is Ben Baldwin. And for his analytics, he says the team block pass blocking win rate, Green Bay Packers, 76 percent, number one, New Orleans Saints, number two, at 72 percent, Arizona, surprisingly, number three, at 68 percent, Chicago, number four, at 68 percent, Seattle Seahawks tied uh, with two other teams, Philadelphia and Cleveland, for number five. All of a sudden, one of the worst blocking teams on the pass. Uh, and again, it didn't show as much in the game on Sunday, but uh, they're winning 66% of their blocks it's on cra- pass. It's crazy because they, you know, usually when you don't have continuity on your offensive line, that spells trouble. But that just shows the awesome job that Mike Solari has done here in the last three seasons. And even though he doesn't really, the whole right side of the line is completely different from the last two years, Solari definitely seems like he is even more comfortable than he already is and really has a set type of offensive lineman that he wants to be protecting Russell Wilson and blocking for running backs like Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. So I think that just speaks to how well of a job that uh, Mike Solari has done. 
Yeah, no doubt. And of course, uh, uh, and again, a couple stats that came out of the game. Now, so much of this was Russell Wilson running around, but according to Next Gen Stats, which is based here in Seattle uh, from Zebra, they uh, he had 3.41 seconds to be able to throw passes. That was his average time, which is normally, you know, you want 2.2. 2.5 or 2.3, he had 3.1. He had an extra second to make his passes. And you saw sometimes where he was just able to stand there, look around, wait for Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf to get open, and then throw him a pass. I think that's a positive sign. And then my read on it was that, uh, you know, <clears throat> this was a this was a better line, and we're still having to see. It's only, you know, three games into it. But what I see is the progress is better athletically, you know, Brandon Shell is, I think, a better athlete than Jermaine Effetti, and he doesn't get the penalties. He's done well. Then you look at the, uh, you know, Damian Lewis before he got hurt. I mean, I know Pro Football Focus not only rated him as one of the better rookie pass blockers, but probably one of the top two or three rookies to come into the league. He was doing that well. Ethan Posick, he's doing well at center. Uh, you know, I know that Dwayne Brown struggled on a few plays, but overall, this is a better pl- pass blocking line, even though it's giving up three sacks a game. Yeah, this line definitely looks better, and they're definitely giving Russell Wilson the time to do what he does best. Out of all the things he does great, is to hit, hit you know hit someone on the deep ball, and it's given him a lot of time to do just that. This line, yeah, John, especially with a rookie right guard, you know, a center in Ethan Posick that hasn't really cracked the starting lineup unless it was for injuries in the past. And you have Brandon Shell, who the Jets just kind of threw to the side. And then, you know, Mike Upati and Dwayne Brown, of course, were the mainstays from last year. And Dwayne Brown, of course, has been one of the best left tackles in the league in the last, you know, decade. And then Mike Upati has always been very pretty good. But to have center, right guard, and right tackle be brand new and to have somehow be better than last year, again, it's just a lot. And with no offseason, really. Mm-hmm. Mike Solari, I mean, one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL. I think that's safe to say. Okay, but that's uh, you know something to keep in mind while everybody's all panicked about the defense and you know in a league right now where 15 teams scored 30 points or more on week three, uh, you know the team is three and zero. Deal yeah. with it. Yeah, three and zero, and they and I mean they got a good chance to go four and zero and even five and zero into the bye with uh, the Dolphins, which of course is a trap game, and especially with the injuries yeah. that the Seahawks are trying to sustain right now. And the Vikings, you know, they have talent. And, of course, you know, they got acquisitions like Unique and Gakwe. You know, Justin Jefferson, their first-round wide receiver, to be paired along with Adam Thielen. Jefferson looked really good last week. So we'll see. We'll see about the Vikings game. But they have a good chance to be 5-0, and John. Yeah, they really do. And, of course, it's just a matter of can then get to the bye week and try to get some guys healthy because they carry a lot of injuries. Of course, the big story of the National Football League today is that uh, eight members of the Tennessee Titans – uh, on top of Shane Bowen, uh, a defensive play caller who didn't go to the Minnesota game because he tested positive. So technically nine Titans, uh, three players in that group, all tested positive. And so the league immediately ordered a shutdown of the facility, along with the shutdown of the Minnesota Vikings facility. And so now uh, nobody's allowed to go in the building. Everybody's going to be working remotely until Saturday. And we'll see where it goes. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers come to town. Uh, the game is still on, but you 
you'd have to think there's a good chance that it's going to cancel. And Minnesota, of course, they also told them to shut down the building, but uh, I don't think that's going to be for too long because they found out that no Viking or there is a staff or anybody else uh, had a positive test. But a scary situation, and now we have the possibility of the first game being postponed and having to juggle the schedule, uh, you know, because I know uh, Pittsburgh and Tennessee, they have their bye weeks in week seven and eight, and they can juggle a few games around and adjust that so that uh, you can go ahead and, uh, you know, get the game in where you don't lose it. But uh, scary situation uh, with now the first real test uh, with three positive tests of players and six others in the Titans organization. This is a huge task for the NFL to really we're going to we're going to see how they're going to handle this, because unfortunately, John, because in baseball, it was going to happen, unfortunately. And right. And we knew sometime, whether it's today or in week 15, that there something was going to happen where someone was going to test positive, a player or personnel or a staff worker, anyone like that, a coach. We we knew this was going to happen eventually. So now this is I mean, it's. It's it's time for the NFL to we're going to see how they deal with this. We're going to see how they scramble around with the schedule. We're going to see if they even just cancel the game like just like baseball did. Mm-hmm. So I'm really intrigued to see how the NFL handles this because, you know, they chose to, of course, go without the bubble environment that works so well for the NHL and the NBA and that baseball is going to adopt for the playoffs with multiple bubble environments. So. Now it's time to see what the NFL does. Yeah, but there was no way you can do a bubble in the oh, NFL. Oh, no, no I chance. Mean, I shouldn't say it like yeah. that. There is no chance. But, but you know, it, because of the sport, how big the rosters are, this is the only way, of course, they could do it. So now it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this. Yeah, no doubt. And, of course, uh, stay tuned. We'll keep you up to date on everything coming out of Nashville. Well, coming up next, we're going to go four downs with Sean Salisbury. It's the John Clayton Show, 710 ESPN Seattle.